for those of us who, thank you so much for, for being here, y'all. I um, am delighted to uh, introduce our guest. Uh, before we do that, though, I would like to offer a quick word of, of prayer for us. So the Lord be with you. Lord, we're grateful that you have sent us on uh, on a mission. You have given us a purpose, a reason, a, a telos, an end goal for our lives and your purposes in the church, that we might be your body, your hands and feet out in the world, and we might, through word and deed, proclaim a witness of your goodness. So we pray, Lord, that we might uh, learn more about what that looks like for each of us today. We might learn more from uh, astute guides and leaders in this uh, area of, of expertise. So, Lord, we ask that you would be with us today and that you would focus our hearts on what we might have to learn. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, we have here, again, as you may have just heard from the pulpit, Dr. Greg Jones. Greg Jones, as you may know, is the uh, president of Belmont. He is formerly the dean of Duke Divinity School, uh, uh, somewhere we have a strong relationship with. And um, he has spent years, as far as I know, being around younger people. Uh, you know, universities, you get to do that a lot. And uh, so I invited him, we invited him to speak just a little bit about what it looks like um, to think about mission, to think about evangelism, to think about discipleship, um, but drawing younger people deeper into the life of church, the life of Christ. And so um, I'm just ex- delighted to hear what he has to tell us. Um, he is like I said, very well versed in what that might look like. And so I'd ask all of you to give him a warm St. George's welcome. Thank you, Dr. Jones. Appreciate you. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you uh, today and be back here at uh, St. George's. I've known of this congregation for many years, and uh, when I was at Duke, uh, had uh, developed great relationships here, had the privilege of preaching and teaching here uh, in the past, as well as coming to some weddings on occasion, uh, and seeing my good friend Jack Bovender, who uh, uh, I met just about my first day at Duke as serving as dean, and he was uh, a wonderful campaign committee chair for me uh, while I was dean, and then welcomed me back as board chair when I came back to the Divinity School uh, three years ago. Now it's a delight for Susan and me to be residents of Nashville and to be at Belmont uh, University. Um, I actually was born here, although we moved from six from here when I was six months old. So, don't have much memory of uh, being here. Although after my appointment was announced, I did discover that uh, my my paternal grandmother was a student at Ward Belmont in 1922 and 23. So there's a, a an even longer history than I was uh, aware of, and we're grateful for those ties. I should note they just found her transcript, which is now hanging in my office. And while she was a school marm when I was a, her grandchild, I always had to dress up and sit in a straight back chair and report on my studies and my grades and everything else. She was a pretty terrible student at Ward Belmont. <laughs> The only good grade she got was in exercise, and so, you know, I got some conversation with her I think I want to have when I uh, get to see her in the kingdom, um, but, well, it's a great joy to be with you, and uh, as David said, you asked, they asked me to talk about uh, evangelism and mission and, and discipleship with young adults. One of the hazards of being uh, in higher education is I get older and they stay the same age. And so it's hazardous. You know, I started realizing I was getting older when uh, the people were showing up to drop off their kids uh, looked like my peers, and now they're looking like my children. And so it's, uh, 
It's a bit, uh, a bit hazardous, but it's also a great joy to be able to work with, uh, with young people. I want to start by uh, zooming out a little bit and provide a, a broader context, and then I'll come back to talk about what I think this looks like uh, in our time and going uh, forward. About uh, five or six years ago, Pew, uh, the Pew Foundation, came out with a a survey on the rise of what they called the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, the people, uh, particularly in their 20s, who uh, seemed to have no faith at all. And uh, the identification of them being nuns was that they were atheists. And so it was being touted as a rise in atheism. And I got a call from a reporter at CNN who wanted me to comment on this rise in atheism among young adults. And I remembered having read a story about a guy who ran a foundation and gave himself a grant because he was trying to figure out young adults and had gone around to college campuses and had discovered the rise in uh, campus ministries that had nothing to do with God. They were uh, the the Humanist Association and the Agnostic Association, these sorts of groups. And And he went to a whole bunch of college campuses to meet with those sorts of folks. And here's what he concluded. They weren't actually atheists. They were just uninterested. And when he talked to them, most of them were people who had been raised in church and had just drifted away because they didn't think it really mattered. And when I heard that story, I thought to myself, oh, well, yeah, that was true of my own kids, that my kids were going when they were in middle school to church and when they were middle school and high school, and they'd be playing games and it was all just superficial stuff. One teacher in my son's Sunday school class Uh, said that uh, he had been going to the beach in North Carolina, passed by a church that said you can't get Jesus through the drive-thru, and the entire Sunday school lesson was to prove it wrong, that you can indeed, he thought, get Jesus through the drive-thru. My son came home and said, I'm never going back. And I thought, fair enough, I understand. By the way, fast forward, he just finished a a doctorate in theology on Bach and the beauty of Christ. So uh, (laughs) he overcame that uh, I'm never going back to church again uh, comment. But it was a problem because, and what I realized was that my kids were studying really significant issues in their school and studies, and they were learning about the Holocaust and reading Elie Wiesel's Night, and they were reading about the history of slavery and the complexity and the realities of evil. And if they went to church and church said nothing about any of that and just seemed like, let's play some games and have fun, there was a disconnect. So what I said to the CNN reporter that day was there, this isn't a story about a rise in atheism. It's a story about boredom. It's a story about us having made Christianity uninteresting sufficiently to where they just don't think there's anything at stake worth paying attention to. So let me zoom that far, farther out to say this is not just a problem for young adults. It's actually a problem we face more broadly in our culture. Charles Taylor wrote a book about a decade ago, a little longer, called A Secular Age. It's a big mama of a book. It's about 900 pages. I don't recommend you read it um, because it's filled with turgid philosopher prose, which sounds like a redundancy. But it's 900 pages. I do recommend a book by Jamie Smith, James K.A. Smith, called How Not to Be Secular. It's about a 130-page precy of Taylor's argument. The heart of the argument, and Jamie does a great job of presenting it, is this. Taylor says, at the beginning of modernity, there were no atheists. Everybody assumed there was a God. The only question was, how is God active in the world? And so if you thought there, that the God 
who exists wasn't active in the world. You were a deist, the old clockmaker, that God had just created the world and then disappeared from it. So he said, everybody in the world at the beginning of modernity assumed there was a God. The only question is, how is God active in the world, if at all? Taylor says, at the end of modernity, everything has flipped. Now we assume that there is no God. What he says is that we live in an immanent frame, I-M-M-A-N, that we assume this world is all there is. Now here's the haunting thing that Taylor says. He says, even believers assume there is no God. Now that might sound paradoxical, but he said, even believers live and act as if there is no God, that that's the default assumption. So Taylor says what we've seen is a flip in assumptions so that now even those who are believers live and act as if this world is all there is. Well, truth of the matter is my life makes way too much sense regardless of whether there's a God on a day-to-day basis. Dorothy Day, the founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, says she wanted to live her life in a way that wouldn't make sense if God doesn't exist. I think my life makes pretty good sense day in and day out. What do I do? How does my life get shaped by my conviction that God raised Jesus from the dead and poured out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost? Does it make any material difference? Is there any way, you know, it's the old C.S. Lewis kind of question about God in the dock. It would, it, if you were being tried for your faith, would there be any evidence to convict? Or do you just live as if nothing really matters. That's the haunting question. Will Willimon and Stanley Hauerwas about uh, 40 years ago published a book 35 years ago called uh, Resident Aliens in which they said the problem with the church is what they diagnosed as practical atheism. Regardless of what we say, in practice we live and act as atheists. And so there's this gap between what we say and how we actually live our lives. Now the problem with that for all of us is that people are yearning for something different. Uh, The British novelist Julian Barnes wrote a a powerful memoir. It's really worth reading. He's a great writer. It's it's, uh, haunting because it's got an ironic title. The title of the book is Nothing to be Frightened of. And the reason it's ironic is he's terribly frightened because he saw himself reaching retirement and thought the rest of his life was decay, decline, and he'd be ashes and bones. And he felt like he hadn't accomplished enough to really ever be remembered in any significant way. And so he wondered if his life had ever had any kind of purpose. And so the title is Nothing to be Frightened of as he spends several hundred pages trying to prove to himself that he's not all that frightened after all. But he is. He's terrified of growing old and dying. The first sentence, though, is one of the most powerful first sentences I've read in a very long time in any book. It's this. I don't believe in God, comma, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, comma, but I miss him. It's that paradox and that yearning that says, I really want to believe. I want to see evidence. I want to see indicators that God is at work, and I don't. And it's depressing. And so the question then becomes, as I read that sentence, was what would it be for us as people of faith to have the kind of faith where somebody would say, whether or not I believe in God, I can see him at work 
over there. I can see the practical impact. Those of you who heard me at the 845 service will remember that I talk about Christianity's surprise in the early church. This is a little bit of a foretaste for those of you who are coming at 11. If you've decided you don't want to hear me anymore, you'll get just this dose here. But the point is that what caused Christianity to spread was this sense of God at work in the world, raising Jesus from the dead, pouring out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And that's what spurred the early Christians into motion. Now, if you go back to Taylor's point about not uh, uh, that even the believers live and act as if all we have is this world, um, part of my framing of things around Easter hope and Pentecostal power came from a couple years ago when a person whom I know well and uh, is a good person in many respects, Serene Jones, used to teach at Yale, uh, she's not related to me. Uh, she uh, used to teach at Yale. She's now president of Union Seminary in New York. And on the Saturday before Easter, Nick Kristoff did an interview with her in the New York Times. And as you may know, if you read Kristoff with any regularity, he's a kind of uh, Julian Barnes inter- interested seeker, trying to figure out whether he could be a Christian or not. There are things he kind of finds interesting, but he always asks these provocative questions. He asked Tim Keller, uh, you know, do you have to believe in the virgin birth to be a Christian? Well, his question for uh, Serene Jones on the Saturday before Easter was, um, do you have to believe in the resurrection? And Serene Jones's response was, well, Easter for me is really just about the triumph of love over hate. Full stop. And I thought, ah, oh, yikes. <laughs> I mean, among other things, having visited the uh, genocide memorial in Kigali, uh, Rwanda, uh, where the, the memorial is built over the mass grave of 250,000 people, roughly the size of Durham, North Carolina, where I recently moved. You just try to comprehend that. I'm not altogether sure that love is more powerful than hate, just left on its own terms. Hate does a heck of a lot of damage in lots of places. Well, I read that and my heart kind of sagged because I thought, you know, this was an invitation and an opportunity for her in the New York Times to say something powerful the day before Easter. And I just read it and then my inbox started filling up. I don't remember if it was, it was somewhere between 15 and 25 messages I got from other people sending me the link saying, have you seen this? About half of them said, "Um, is this what... uh, Deans of divinity schools and presidents of seminaries believe. The other half, thankfully, were saying, we're so glad you don't believe that. I was reassured by the people who uh, thought that I at least had something more. But I thought, you know, I'm with St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. If God didn't raise Jesus from the dead, then our faith is in vain. There are lots of better ways to spend a Sunday morning or other things if it's just to kind of make ourselves feel better or just kind of prop up something to say, maybe there's some hope. You see, I think that the yearning that's out there, whether it's from a Julian Barnes or even a Nick Christopher, it's there in spades among young adults, is wondering, is there anything worth believing in? Is there anything worth staking my life on? Is there anything that actually makes a difference in real time in this world that would bear witness to some sense of transcendence? 
My wife Susan has a wonderful sermon. She preached it yesterday morning for Parents Weekend at Belmont. It was just beautiful where she takes the, the twofold great commandment and says, uh, we all yearn for three things, transcendence, significance, and community. And that's about loving God, neighbor, and self. And it's when those come together But that depends on a belief that there is a God and that that God is active in the world and that God raised Jesus from the dead and poured out the Holy Spirit of Pentecost. Now, why do I keep emphasizing that raising Jesus from the dead and pouring out the Holy Spirit? It's the sense that God's active in the world. And if you believe that, then the task for us is to catch up to what God is doing in the world. It's scary because it means we're going to have to change the context in which we think about our work and our leadership. You see, um, if, you, if you really believe that God's at work in the world, then the, the most important thing to understand about leadership of any organization is that you're going to lead by nausea. Because God has this annoying habit. Just read the story of Gideon in the Old Testament. Of when you think everything's just going fine, God says, let me disrupt things a little more. Because if you do it now, you're going to take credit for it. And so Gideon says, all right, now I'm ready. God says, no, no, you're still going to take credit you could do if you accomplish this. And so there's this sense in which God keeps ratcheting up the stakes until you can't imagine how it could work unless God blesses it and God is involved in it. And that's what impelled the early Christians was this sense of being caught up and continually going, oh, we could do more. Imagine what that might be possible. That's what young people are yearning for, is a belief that there's something worth staking their life on, that there is hope, that they can believe and trust in the future. See, if you live in the imminent frame that Charles Taylor's talking about, you really begin with Genesis 3 and end with Revelation 19. And you start with the reality of conflict and sin and brokenness and division, and you end there. And then you say, well, can we rein it in a little bit? Now, I do understand the desire to rein it in a little bit. My wife served a church once where they threw chairs at each other at a governing board meeting. And if you've got that kind of thing, you know, bringing in someone just to manage some conflict is probably a good thing. But we're called to something more. We're called to forgiveness and reconciliation. We're called to bearing witness to what it means to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love neighbor as ourselves. Concrete evidence of what this can look like was when I was at Duke and we invited Greg Boyle to come to speak uh, at Duke for a week um, through the Keenan Institute for Ethics. And I was privileged to host him. Greg is a Jesuit priest who started about 30 years ago a social enterprise called Homeboy Industries out in South Central LA. It was prompted by the fact that he had um, been assigned to a parish in South Central LA. And when he would say Mass... People would come, and it was mostly uh, older women, and all of their prayers were for their sons, who tended to be in prison, in the hospital, or at risk of being in one of those two places. And he thought, oh my goodness, mostly Hispanic community, and he realized there were tons of gangs in the neighborhood, and that's what the mothers were praying for. So he went out, and he realized that part of the problem was these kids didn't have any hope, and they had too much time on their hands. And so he started working out deals where he'd go and, and say to somebody, if I, give, if, if, if I can find somebody to pay these kids, can you put them to work? And so he'd raise money over here and then employ the kids over there. And eventually he said, hey, we could start our own business. So they started uh, first, uh, the, the, the first business was called a Homeboy uh, Cafe. 
If you're in LAX, you can now see they actually have a branch in LAX where you can buy it there. They started that and it started to get people working. They were uh, running a restaurant. And so the Homeboy Cafe, Homeboy Bakery, they got everything going. Turns out there was one social enterprise they started that didn't work so well. He tried Homeboy Plumbing. Turns out not many people wanted convicted felons and gang kids coming into their homes with metal pipes. So not everything worked. But over time, they kept building homeboy t-shirts. They have all sorts of enterprises. And the point was that his motto was, the best way to stop a bullet is with a job. And it's extraordinary. He's got two books. I recommend both of them to you. One's called Tattoos on the Heart. The other's called Barking at the Choir. He gets both phrases from homeboys uh, who just always kind of garble your metaphor, your cliche in really creative ways. But we brought Greg Boyle to campus, and he's a great storyteller, just an amazing storyteller. He was in Nashville at the end of August uh, for a Porter's Call, an evening of stories. And I just realized, I, I was hearing stories I've heard five or six times, and I tear up every time just because of the way he tells the stories and the power of those stories. I'll tell you one story that he told that, that he lifted up when I was in I interviewed him over and over again. And he's up there in front of a lot of undergraduates, he tells a story about when he was invited by President Bush, George W. Bush, to go to the White House. They were doing something about powerful social uh, entrepreneurs that were changing people's lives. And so he was invited to go. And Laura Bush asked if he could bring a couple of his homies with him. Well, it turns out that they were convicted felons, not allowed to leave the state. So we had to go through all sorts of uh, stuff. And Laura Bush had to personally intervene with the FBI to get them to leave the state. They'd never been on an airplane before. She... Greg Boyle had to go buy them suits to go to the White House. They'd never been to a, a, a nice place before. There's a funny story about they finally get there, and they go into the White House. They're in the blue room for the reception, and one of the homies takes a, a, a very nice uh, hors d'oeuvre and spits it out and says in a very loud voice an expletive, this blank is awful. And so, you know, it was a challenging trip in lots of ways, and they get on the plane, Greg Boyle's telling about how they get on the plane, they're coming back. And uh, one of the homies is back in his shorts and t-shirts, tattoos all over his body, piercings as you could imagine. And he says, I got to go to the bathroom. Boyle says, it's at the back of the plane. So he goes to the back of the plane and he's gone for a very long time. And Father Boyle's learned that, you know, these aren't perfect people. And so he starts to get anxious. Is the guy getting into trouble? Is he uh, hitting on some woman or what's, you know, he's just all sorts of bad things are running through his mind. Finally, the homie comes back up toward the front of the plane where they're sitting, and he says, Father G, it's not my fault. Father Boyle says, what's not your fault? He says, I didn't do it. What didn't you do? He said, well, I I started to come back, and I ran into this, this stewardess, and she started asking me questions. She said, she asked me what I was doing on this plane, and she was kind of suspicious, and so I told her that I'd just been to the White House. And she looked at me like I was not telling the truth. And so she said, how did you get invited to the White House? So I started to tell her about you, and then I told her about how I'd been in gangs, and I'd, I'd done some really terrible things, and how you'd helped change my life, and you'd given me a job, and you'd given me hope, and given me new life. And I started telling her about all this stuff, and about Homeboy, and everything, and, and she started crying, and I didn't hit her or nothing. <laughs> and then the Homeboy turns and says, 
Why do you think she started crying? Because I didn't hit her. I didn't do anything. And Father Boyle says, I think it's because as she heard your story and she saw your face, she saw the face of God. And when you hear that and see that, it can make you emotional. Well, he told that story. And afterwards, if I had a dollar for every undergraduate who came up to me and said, oh, if that's what Christianity is, sign me up. They saw in him a life that wouldn't make sense if God doesn't exist. They saw in him somebody who has that sense that life can be different, that as John's gospel would put it, that we can have life abundant, that even gang kids can have life abundant, that even under-resourced kids can have life abundant, that you and I can have life abundant, that we don't have to be bound by the divisions that exist in our families and communities and culture, that we can have this kind of new possibility. And so that's what I think young adults are yearning for, is to see people and communities that really begin to say what this looks like. Father Boyle, in, uh, in uh, Barking at the Choir, talks about this, and he, he's even more eloquent talking about it in person. He says, his whole life changed when he actually began to believe that the Holy Spirit's at work in the world. He said it was five words in the book of Acts that changed everything. And when he told me the five words, I thought, they're not in the book of Acts. What are you talking about? I just chucked it up. He was a Catholic, didn't know the Bible too well. (laughs) Because, you know, I've actually taught the book of Acts. I've written about the book of Acts. I've published articles about the book of Acts. I've led retreats on the book of Acts. And when he said the five words, I was like, don't remember them. And then he told me where to find them. Chapter 2, verse 43. It's annoying when somebody actually quotes the, the, uh, the actual text. So I went and looked it up, and sure enough, I just kind of skipped over that. That's the boring chapter, right? Um, and there it says, and here are the five words. And awe came upon everyone. And awe came upon everyone. Now it's in the context of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost is described in chapter 1. In chapter 2, it starts to move into what does this mean for how we live together and how we relate to one another? And here's what he says. He says, when my fundamental stance for engaging others and thinking about what we need to do moved from judgment to awe, everything changed. He said, trust me, I got plenty of reasons to sit in judgment of the kids I work with. They've done horrible things. They continue to do horrible things. They backslide. They disappoint. They frustrate. They relapse. All kinds of things. He said, I could sit in judgment morning, noon, and night and be justified in doing so. He said, it's when I began to see that the Holy Spirit was at work and I would look at them with awe and say, what burdens are they carrying? How's God already at work in their life and how can I help that happen further? It's not to say that you ignore the judgment that says your life needs to change. If you relapse, you're not allowed to participate in the job. There are standards and there is accountability. It's a fundamentally different role. And that's when I began to say, oh, it's about Easter hope. It's also about Pentecostal power. It's about saying when awe comes upon everyone. And you say, look at the possibilities. I know you would... St. George's have been doing a lot of work over the last decade around social enterprise, and that's a lot of what Greg Boyle's talking about. It's a lot of what the early church was talking about. I believe it's what young adults are yearning for, 
is to see that connected to a confident hope and trust in the power of the gospel. One final story, and then I'll, and I'll open it up for questions. But here's why I think it's at the heart of what evangelism and discipleship with young adults is about, is about seeing how they can come alongside others and through faith develop the confident hope in the future. Here's why it matters as we think about young adults. There was a wonderful guy at Duke uh, who uh, became a dear friend. His name was Greg Dees. He taught at the Fuqua School of Business. He was known as the father of social entrepreneurship as an academic field of study. He started the program at Harvard Business School, started at Stanford Business School, started the Stanford Social Innovation Review. Then he came to Duke and started the Center for the Advancement of Social Entrepreneurship. We became friends, and one day we were having lunch, the Washington Duke Inn. And he said to me, Greg, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, what happened to the church? I said, could you be a little more specific? This is about 15 years ago. He said, what happened to the church? I said, about what? And he said, well, let me put it this way. He said, my field wouldn't exist in business schools if it hadn't been for a loss of confidence in the church. And I said, okay, say more. He said, well, if you look at American history, all the great movements, education, health care, business, uh, anti-racism, anti-slavery, uh, housing, Habitat for Humanity, Goodwill, Salvation Army. He said, over the, the, the course of American history, in so many arenas, including for-profit businesses, were founded by people of faith who thought that they could make the world better by their new work. And he said, then around 1970, y'all, and now I'm standing in for all Christians, <laughs> it's like y'all had a conference and said, let's stop doing that. And you lost interest. And so now it's secular organizations like Teach for America that have had the more ambitious aims that, try to, that actually inspire young people. And he said, so I was just wondering, what happened to you? Well, it was like a bullet had gone between my eyes because, you know, I could just imagine um, in my own Wesleyan tradition, in the broader Anglican communion, how, that, how true that was. Think about William Wilberforce and slavery. Think about the Guinness Company, which pioneered a lot of the work of businesses engaged in their community in transformational ways. And I just thought, how many universities across the country were founded by Baptists, Methodists, Episcopalians, Lutherans? Catholics, etc. And I thought, oh my goodness. And we'd lost that imagination. Fast forward about 10 years later, Greg and I were starting a project at Duke that was going to be a big project uh, to try to instill innovation entrepreneurship across the campus. He wanted to me to team teach a course with him. And I thought, okay, I'd be glad to. And we were sitting down, and I said, Greg, why do you need me? He co-chaired Davos's Commission on Social Entrepreneurship, and we'd be having lunch, and Wendy Kopp from Teach for America would call one day, and another day it'd be Muhammad Yunus. And I'm going, I'm just a simple little preacher. Why do you want to work with me? He said, because if people of faith don't get back engaged, it'll fade away as a fad. And I thought, huh. I almost asked him right then, tell me more. But I thought, we have a whole semester next spring to teach it, to, to talk about it. Two days later, he suffered a stroke, never recovered, and then died. 
I was asked to do his funeral. It was an incredible gathering of some of the most important and interesting social entrepreneurs, mostly acting out of secular motives. Over the years since then, that question has haunted me. And here's what I think is at the heart of what Greg was talking about. It wasn't just motivation. It was that young people, no matter how idealistic or enthusiastic or committed they are, are going to hit brick walls. Because the world in which we live is resistant to transformation. There will be lots of challenges. And I think what he thought was that if all you're doing it is, is out of secular, idealistic motivation, you'll become cynical pretty quick. Winston Churchill said if a person's not an optimist at age 16, he doesn't have a heart. If he's not a cynic by the age of 40, he doesn't have a head. Because you just encounter the intractability of the world. And the difference that it makes when it's faith-based is if you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead on Easter, and if you believe the Holy Spirit's at work in the world, you're going to be motivated not by optimism. You're going to be motivated by hope. Because hope is the confident trust in who God is, not in who we are. And particularly in the wake of the last few years, it may not be a great time to be optimistic about where things are headed. It is still a great time to be hopeful. And so I believe that the most important thing we can do to reach young adults is to have those kinds of visions of what social enterprise is about, about what does it mean to see other people as bearing the image and likeness of God? What does it mean to envision how we can invest and create and sustain institutions that can transform those relationships? Because the more we do that kind of work, the more I think we'll find young adults wanting to say, oh, if that's what Christianity is, sign me up. They're not likely to be captured by any fad. They're going to be captured by a belief that God continues to be active in the world. And that's at the heart of our hope. Oh, and by the way, I suspect if we can appeal to young adults that way, we'll discover that even some people like Julian Barnes will discover that they don't miss God nearly as much as they thought because Christianity will have become surprising again.